Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. And we are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Today, we're broadcasting from an overcast and a little bit wet Los Angeles. Now, if you're not familiar with Los Angeles, um, if we think we're going to get a hundredth of an inch of rain, all the radio, all the breakfast shows start two hours earlier so they can talk about it. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And it, you get sprinkles for 15 seconds, and that's it. However, it's nice to see it from time to time, and we are in a drought. Now, on this program, we love entrepreneurs. The show's all about entrepreneurs, people who are creative, and they can make something out of nothing. Now, I want you to meet the person who is going to make millions and millions out of social media. And this time, he's doing it on Instagram, which is a bit unusual. So I want to introduce you to Riker Wixom. He's a four-year-old from Los Angeles, California. Where else? Riker is a style hacker. He's four years old and he mimics poses of celebrities that he sees in magazines on Instagram. And I have to say... I absolutely love the idea, and his takeoff of the big stars is really terrific. He's now being courted by big-name brands. Now, you want to check it out for yourself. Riker's Instagram is Mini Style Hacker. So that's Mini Style Hacker, and he's got around 200,000 followers. So this four-year-old copies the outfits and poses of celebrities and models, and anybody else who's famous on Instagram. And he's now being hailed as a style influencer himself. Major brands are so eager to feature in future posts, they pay him for the opportunity to make the most of Instagram's accounts, uh, the financial potential of this account. His mother has now appointed agencies Instafluence, Instafluence, God, that's a hard word. And Reach. And both of these companies help pair brands with tastemakers and style influencers. From the brand's perspective, this is really a canny idea. Sophia Green, who's the founder of London-based fashion agency Fifth House PR, says Instagram is now an integral part of marketing for brands. Who'd have thunk it? Instagram. Yes, it's the most authentic way for a celebrity or an opinion former to endorse a brand and can push sales and brand awareness to a huge audience instantly. Now, this next statistic will absolutely knock your socks off. Between 40 to 60% of some brands' sales, 40 to 60% of their total sales were directly thanks to Instagram last year. So who would have thought that Instagram could influence 60% of a whole chain's sales? That's unbelievable. So, little Riker is about to start really raking it in, and all the profits are being saved in a college fund for Riker and his little brother, Gray. Now, Gray's almost two, and he makes cameos on the site, also in the mini hacker style. Wow. So even though he dresses in exactly the same clothes and style as the people he is copying, kids all across the world that are four are now starting to wear exactly the same clothes. The kid's four, and he's already a style icon, on his way to making a million bucks, so move over, Prince George. <laughs> 
if you're an entrepreneur or you run a business, there are a whole stack of things that you need to keep under control. One of these is to make sure you keep an eye on your biggest competitors and always know exactly what they're doing. Of course, and people laugh at this, but the very first thing you should do every morning when you get out of bed is to check your competitors' websites. It's amazing. It blows me away just how often somebody will put up information that's come from a strategy meeting or something that's supposed to be confidential and some idiot posts it on the site. Now, if you're in tune and going to their site every day, you could pick up a huge amount of information. There's literally been thousands of examples where a simple mistake like that has given the competition a huge advantage. So knowing what your competition's up to, it's an important part of running a business. And fortunately, in today's digital business environment, this must-do activity isn't as anywhere near as hard as it used to be. I mean, it used to be really difficult. But now there's a whole host of diff- simple tools on the market that'll let you keep an eye on your competitors without spending a lot of money. Let me just tell you about a few of the tools that are free. So that's a good price if you're in business. F-R-E-E, free, nada. And this will help you get um, your competitive mark monitoring program started. Of course, the first one that comes to mind is Google Alerts. It's popular, it's an easy-to-use tool, and it'll let you know when a specific competitor or an industry or a term is mentioned online. You can set up as many alerts as you want for nada, nil. And you can receive emails as often as you like when your designated keyword is mentioned. Now, when you set up Google Alerts, make sure that you create alerts for a whole range of combinations. You've got a pen, you've got a pen and a piece of paper, Grab yourself a pen and a piece of paper. You've got three seconds. One, two, time's up. Start writing. One needs to be your name. Two needs to be your company name. Three needs to be your business address, your URL, your tagline, your brand and your product names, your competitors' names, your competitors' company names, your competitors' URLs your competitors' taglines, and your competitors' brands or product names. Now, if you've got all of those, then you'll get Google Alerts anytime any of those are mentioned anywhere. And you, you, know, you can also use Google Alerts to monitor mentions of your own name to assist in brand sentiment monitoring efforts. It's pretty important. The second free tool that you should think about, again, Free, F-R-E-E, is social mention, which allows you to search mentions of specific keywords or companies across a variety of social media sites. Now, they can be blogs, or videos, and social networks. You'll see it in the results if it's been mentioned online. And one of the best uses of social mention is its sentiment analysis feature. Once you search for your brand or your competitors, the tool will try to determine, you know, based on context, whether your social mention is positive or negative. Monitoring changes in this assessment over time can show whether your advertising campaign is having a positive effect on people's opinion of you and your products relative to your competitors. I think that's a really cool tool. Social mention can also be used to analyze the results of your social sharing and uh, what effect that's had on various platforms to see if one drives more engagement than another. Now, if you want to know what's being said about your competitors on Twitter, rather than using manual searches, which is a pain in the ass and you've got to go through a whole bunch of crap, try Topsy, T-O-P-S-Y, which will let you look up your competitors' tweets going back as far as nine years. <laughs> you can also use this tool to 
to see the number of tweets, the shares, and the level of influence a competitor has day-to-day and week-to-week, as well as compare your own influence metrics. So that's a pretty good tool. And uh, one way to use this information is to study the response your competitors received to see what kind of messages might resonate best with your consumers of the future, which were probably their consumers of the past. So you can take a look at any past promotional tweets your competitors used, like offering coupon codes or promoting sales, see which tweets received the most engagement, and try mimicking their structure on your own future updates. That's a pretty good idea. Import IO, that's import IO, import dot IO, is another powerful tool, and it allows you to crawl any website and transform it into a table of data or a structured API in minutes without writing any code. It's a great tool to use if you want to learn more about what your competitors are doing online. For example, if you run an e-commerce or an online retail store, you can stay competitive in your market by using import.io to collect real-time pricing data on your competitors. The last tool that I'm going to mention, these are what I'm talking about. If you just tuned in, we're talking about tools that you can use to keep track of your competitors. And this one's called InfiniGraph, which is I-N-F-I-N-I-G-R-A-P-H, which is another amazing free, (laughs) free, F-R-E-E tool that tracks social media trends either within an industry or related to a company. You can use this program to see what's currently important within your audience and to determine how relevant your competitors are within your industry. I think that's pretty cool. So to be competitive today, you need to know every single thing there is to know about your competitors. And with those five simple and free tools, you're well on your way. Uh, Last week, I mentioned the um, American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management. And if you received my newsletters or email recently, you'll notice that I have the designation AISMM after my name. I joined about 20 years ago, so I'm not a Johnny-come-lately, and it's really assisted me with my business. It's provided a hell of a lot of information. I've networked with a lot of incredible people, and I'm proud to be a member of America's premier training organization. You know, the um, American Institute of Sales Marketing Management is dedicated to improving the skill and capability of its members. The primary aim of the Institute is to raise the standard and proficiency of both individuals and companies within the sales, marketing, and management disciplines of business. Through you know, innovation and strategic partnerships, AISMM continues to establish itself as a leader in its field, and it's got membership comprising professionals from every level an industry sector. So it doesn't matter whether you're a company director or a management manager or a marketing specialist or an engineer or a trainer or a consultant or even a student. They all work within the Institute to achieve one common goal, people and company growth and success. So if you're interested in becoming a member, go to AISMM.US. Oh, And I forgot to mention, I've just been made honorary president of AISMM, which is a long way off being a humble member 20 years ago, although humble is not a term that is often applied to me. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide on Voice America Business. We are here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of business, Don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air. Or we'll email, I'll try that again. We will email you directly. Now, make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter. It's sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. We've also 
had a fantastic response to sending out the summary of each week's radio program, which we do now. We've been doing it for about eight weeks, and there's another one going out right about now for last week. My interview after the break is Alex Rowland. He's the CEO at Amp Desk. Now, this guy's great. He is a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he was the former founder and CEO of Cosmo TV, a leading B2B provider of syndicated video players and platforms. He spent the last 15 years building internet companies in a whole stack of industries. And uh, he's a good guy. I like him. And I'll be back with Alex in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting and successful business people. We look at the services they provide and what makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and uh, we need all the help that we can get. And that's why it's so important for us to all have mentors and a network of people that we can utilize and, and learn from, take on board the advice that is given to us by those that are already successful. We don't have time to make the mistakes that have been made a hundred times before and usually Mistakes are expensive, and most of us are running pretty tight ships, so we don't have money to waste. Alex Rowland serves as the CEO of AmpDesk. Alex is former founder and CEO of Cosmo TV, a leading B2B provider of syndicated video players and platforms. He spent 15 years building internet companies in a variety of industries and has spent the least Laced. Last, try the last, eight years deeply involved in the digital video market. Now, prior to Cosmo TV, Alex was the founder and CEO of US Power Solutions. And prior to that, he founded a consulting business called IC Solutions that provided internet development services to small cap enterprises. He's been a pretty successful boy over those years, so it's my pleasure to welcome him to the program. Hi, Alex. That's a, quite a track hey, record. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Uh, it's not easy, I and mean, I, I think a lot of people uh, don't really understand what goes into creating a business, and I think it's, um, it's an interesting thing. I think there's a lot of perceptions that uh, I can clarify a little bit. Yeah. Um, well... Most of us have heard the statistics that, um, you know, around 95% of all businesses fail um, within the first 10 years. And there's um, statistics around that of all the startups, because there's startups popping up in every suburb every day, um, that something over 90% of all startups fail for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so why the hell should anybody start a business? I mean, um, you'd have to be a masochist, wouldn't you? I mean, would you would you go to a brain surgeon that only got five percent right? 
<laughs> you wouldn't, would you? <laughs> now, well, so I, why I, would you do it? Well, I, and I think you have to be a little bit insane, frankly, to, to start oh. a, a company, right? I, I think that's that's part of it. I think you have to have this sense of, um, you know, you can do anything and, and solve any problem, which for almost everyone uh, at some point in time is, is a wrong assumption, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, yeah, so, so I think it's, it is a little bit insane to do it, and it's frankly surprising to me how many people actually do give a shot. Um, you know, it's, but at the same time, I think it's one of those things where, um, at least for the people that I meet, there's some people who you can tell just are not going to be satisfied with their life unless they give that a shot at least once. And other people who are perfectly happy uh, working for someone else and, and taking a safer route for their entire life. So, so I think it's, you know, partially genetics and partially how you're brought up and everything else. Um, but I think for, at least for me, for example, I, I couldn't imagine, going through life without doing it. So I think it's uh, it's probably a little bit like insanity. I think it's a little bit uh, built into us. Well, I actually tried working once. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I finished university with a BSc and I went to work for a, um, uh, was ICI actually, and uh, as a chemist. And I lasted five days and I thought, I am out of here. I can't do this. I just it just wasn't in my genes to be um, an employee. So I guess it also um, you also need to have be single probably, or have a very understanding spouse, or money behind you. You really need those things, don't you? Yeah, I, I would suggest it's, you know, it's tough to say to anyone who's got that feeling that they've got to go out and start a business that it's probably not the right time. Um, I think it's a little bit like having kids. You know, if you really thought about it, it's never really a good time to have kids. You just have to kind of make the leap. But at the same time, you know, I think it's, you know, the only thing at the end of the day that kills companies is running out of money. Yes. Right? If you've got money, you can always change your business model or change your staff or change your location or do any one of a number of different things. The only thing that definitely kills any company is running out of money. So I think, you know, the one thing that I would definitely advise anyone that's looking to do it is make sure you're at least in a position that you continue to pay the bills. You know, it's a, you know, when you talk about an understanding spouse or, or being single, I think it's easiest when you're young simply because uh, as, an, as an individual, you can go ahead and uh, eat your ramen noodles and, you know, live in a, a basement apartment and do all those things necessary to keep your, your costs low and focus on, on building something. But starting a business without any money in the bank um, is very, very difficult. You have to have some sort of runway uh, or, you know, the advantage you have with a spouse sometimes if the spouse can provide, you know, enough income to cover both of you for a while, um, you know, that, that's another potential solution. But like you said, it's got to be a pretty understanding spouse. <laughs> and if it doesn't work and she's worked for three years while you've screwed around with whatever you want to do. That's a long God, time in the doghouse. You are going to live with that forever. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Most people who start a business probably begin by bootstrapping it a bit from friends and relatives, and then they always underestimate the costs, and they always underestimate the amount of time that it's going to take. So they go on to angel sites, which is, seems to be the, the usual um, progression. Um, and I know some people who are involved with angel sites, and they say that the, the overwhelming majority of people who do go on angel sites, first of all, when they get face-to-face with investors, they usually get less money than they want to get and they end up giving away more equity than they really want to give away simply because they, they think the company's worth a hell of a lot more than it actually is. So what's the best way to go ahead and finance a business? Is it is it through the angel sites or what is the best way? Yeah, I, I think this is kind of a multi-step process, and I think this is where some of the biggest misunderstandings of potential entrepreneurs come is when it is really around money. I think there's this perception that if you've got a good idea, you can go pitch a few people and someone will write you a check. And I think, you know, at least in my experience, that's just not been the case. And, and I think mine either. <laughs> no, it's, it's much, much harder to raise money than most people think. And the level of... Um, 
you know, work you have to do around raising money can really take you off the ball of actually building a business. So, yep. so my definite advice when it comes to financing a business comes back to that original idea. Uh, if, if you're a seasoned entrepreneur, you've had multiple exits in your belt, financing business can be relatively easy. You go back to the existing investors you get a lot of money for, and but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who's looking to make a go of this uh, for the first time. I'd say you'd almost certainly want to have uh, the initial financing coming from yourself, right, or maybe your immediate family. Right? Yes. You, you do not want to be going past that a group of people because it's a very quick way to lose friends and kind of isolate yourself. Yep. So I'd say start, start with a, uh, a business model that enables you to prove out uh, the model and get to a place where you can either uh, generate revenue or have a viable commercial product, something that uh, is financeable because when it comes to getting external financing, um, while at the same time, uh, money is more plentiful, the requirements of investors to put money into a business has also become much higher. I, I think the yeah. bar has been set in place that yeah. most people are not expecting. And yeah. most investors uh, today, a part of the advantage of the last 15, 20 years of technological innovation is the cost, at least the technology, of getting a business off the ground and to a point of commercial viability is it has gone from literally millions of dollars down to a couple hundred thousand dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars in yep. some circumstances. So it's, I think that's important to realize that if you're going to go out and try to raise money, whether it's from, you know, uh, large angel investors or venture capital firms or any, you know, any person who's not directly known to you on a, on a, on a friendly basis, uh, you're going to have to have, a whole lot to show those people in order for them to go ahead and write a check. Right. It also takes a certain type of animal, doesn't it, to go and meet with um, angels because they're pretty brutal, most of them. And, um, you know, it takes a... I don't know, I'm not very good at it. You know, I've been around a long time and I've, I've done millions of speeches and I've been on television for five years and I've done all sorts of things, but going and meeting a room full of angel investors scares the hell out of me. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it can be a very intimidating uh, process, right? It's something I've literally done. You know, I, I was thinking about the other day. I, I've probably presented different businesses over the last 20 years um, to 500, you know, maybe more than that, different investor groups uh, over the years, from individual angels to a room full of VCs. And it's it's enormously intimidating process, especially as the, the level investor becomes more sophisticated and the type of questions they're going to ask someone, you really need to be in a position where you understand the business from a very fundamental basis. You understand the financials, you, you know, and you've, and I wouldn't say, you know, avoid it. You've got to go through that to really experience it and to understand what it, what it looks like. But it's, it, again, I think it's much tougher than most people would consider. And I think it's, one of the things that I'd also say is a lot of people try to say, I'm going to go after this business. You know, I've got an idea and I'm going to run with it. The most important thing, I think, maybe even more important than money up front, is to be able to build a team around you. The yeah. fact is entrepreneurs that are successful are very, very good at convincing other people that their vision is correct and it's going to result in a very valuable business. Right. And I'm telling you, it's, it's much easier to present or pitch um, other team members who will put their time and effort into helping you achieve your goal as opposed to someone writing a check. And if you can't get past the phase of getting a team, you know, two, three, four, five people together that are helping you literally for free to help you achieve your goal, there's no way you're going to get past that group of people onto to investors that will help, uh, help you achieve your goal by simply writing checks. You've got to be a leader, someone who can rally some troops and get people behind what you're trying to do. So from your, from your experience, um, is it easier to, um, to get an investor if you pitch to a room full of investors or is it easier one-on-one? -on -one? Much easier one-on-one. -on -one. The, the, the problem with a room full of investors they lead each other. <laughs> that, well, they, they, all you need is one guy, and there will always be in a room like that. There will always be one guy who takes a ne very negative view as to what you're doing. 
Yep. And all it takes is that one guy to take the entire room down. You might have a room of 20 people and 19 would be ready to write you a check. And one guy sits there and beats you up for 45 minutes <laughs> and, and you've lost the whole room. Right. Yep. It's, so I would definitely say try to keep the groups as small as possible. Ideally, it's, it's one-on-one. If you have to present to, to a, you know, a room full of people, you know, that, that happens and you go ahead and give it it. Um, but it's just, that would be my caution. It, it seems like it'd be more efficient, but the room generally tends to shift in the direction of the, the more negative sentiment. Yeah. Um, Tim Draper. Uh, who I know quite well, said um, says that the most important thing in his decision-making process, the product, the project's got to be good, of course, but is the enthusiasm and the drive of the entrepreneur. He said, unless he can look them in the eyes and believe that they're going to run across burning coals for this product, then he ain't going to be in it. Do you agree with that? I think that's 100% accurate. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you look at the average person, the reason why entrepreneurs kind of have to be insane is because the level of effort you have to put into getting a business off the ground uh, is extraordinary. And it's, um, and it's not just the level of effort. I think it's the ability to absorb um, bad, uh, bad news. Right? Yeah. You know, in, in my career, I can't tell you the number of times in which I've had a day in which I felt like I could take over the world, um, followed, you know, a few short hours later by news that made me feel like the world was coming to an end, right? It is a complete emotional roller coaster, and it's a very rare person, I think, in general, who can absorb that level of elation and that level of despair in such close proximity <laughs> over and over and over again. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so when you've got your business to the point where you've, you've got a little bit of revenue, you're not, not making a lot of money, but you, you're paying your bills or almost meeting your burn rate, um, what's the important thing, what are the most important things when you're actually at that point and you're, you're starting to get up and running? Yeah, I think it's, again, to me, the most important thing about businesses uh, is people. And that sounds kind of trite, but, but it's true in that uh, people can make a business very successful um, and they can also kill a business very quickly. So it's your ability to identify talent around you, assemble that talent to, to get behind your vision and to, and to work with you to try to achieve your goals keeping everyone in line and making sure they're, they're moving in the same direction. Um, and then moving from a phase in which you've got a bunch of people who are essentially working for sweat equity, right? They're, they're working for free to make this thing a success to one in which you're actually hiring people who are expecting a salary and who are, um, you know, more mercenary, right? They're there for paycheck and they're there, but they don't have quite the same level of belief that the original founding team would have. Um, that process is enormously risky. Um, people are very expensive. And once you start bringing on those mercenaries, you have to spend that much more time really selling them on the vision and making sure they're, they're following that, that direction. So, uh, you know, most of where I see businesses kind of fail is in that, in that transition. When they, when they finally got something that's working, they're generating some revenue. Um, they you know, a lot of people get, at that point in time, they got some revenue and they got a commercial product and things seem to be going fairly well. Maybe they raise a bit of money, right? They finally have the, the story required to go out and get someone to write them a quarter million dollar check or a million dollar check or something to, to kind of scale the business up. Yep. And in that transition where they finally have to say, okay, well, now we've got to hire these two or three people or whatever, um, so many people fail that process. They're not going to identify talents. They're not going to keep them on board. Um, they spend, they hire too many people, right? People are like mushrooms. Once you, you know, one <laughs> pops up, and then all of a sudden you've got a whole nest around. Like people just that's what they do, right? They want to they want to grow their teams and have a lot of people around. So I, I would say that's that's one of the things that you have to be most conscious of is making sure every single person in the company 
is someone that you feel like without that person, the business would fail. If it's, if you look around the room and go, well, if, you know, uh, Peter over there left tomorrow, we'd be okay. Yeah. Do everyone a favor and get rid of Peter immediately. Right. <laughs> Even if he's a, a B level performer and you think he'd be at a very early stage of the business, unless everyone in the room is an A level performer, they don't belong there. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, every person you hire that's not as good as you takes you backwards, can't take you forwards. Um, so, with these initial three, four, two, five people that um, come and, and um, buy into your belief and prepared to bust their ass to make this thing work, what sort of um, um, equity you give them at that stage? Because um, it's going to be diluted and diluted and diluted as you move forward, isn't it? So what's enough to get them motivated to um, to want to work with you? I think it really depends upon the person. I, I, you know, I think if you're, if you're arm in arm with someone right at the formation of business and you feel like that person is absolutely critical, right? They, they fill holes in your capabilities that, and they do so in such a way that you feel like the business wouldn't work without them. Yep. Um, then I think you really have to compensate them fairly well from an equity perspective, right? If you know, maybe you're the founder, you have the original idea and you've assembled a team and you take half the business and you give the other half to, to two or three other people and that seems to be like a fairly reasonable uh, picture. Sometimes it's one in which you feel like all the team members are really equal contributors to the business, and then you want to distribute the, the equity fairly equally. Yeah, I think it's 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 only it's the same thing as raising money. It's it's only when you have someone who is obviously absolutely central, right? It, they've done this before. They know what they're doing, and they can they can assemble a team fairly readily and raise money fairly readily. Then you're in a situation where that person would say, you know, listen, you know, I'm going to take the, the lion's share of the business. I'm going to be a 60, 70, 80 percent of the business because um, I could, you know, all the people I'm bringing in while they may be A players, I can find five other people to replace them. It's to me, it's all about the leverage that people have when they walk into the equation. Um, and the most important thing I'd say is if, you know, I would distribute equity according to, um, what people feel like they're going to contribute. But if one, if one party, especially, you know, if it's the initial kind of seed of the idea is coming from one specific party and they're putting the money out, yep. you treat that money like you treat any other equity. You basically say, okay, we're going to distribute equity. And maybe you say there's, there's four founders. We're each going to uh, take money uh, individually or, or take our equity equally. Um, you know, we're going to distribute 25% of the business to each of us. Yep. But, the one founder is, says, I'm going to put, you know, $100,000 in the business to get the ground. Yep. Well, then that, sh- that should dilute everyone, right? That, that sure. person might literally say, a formation of the business is only worth, um, you know, $100,000. So I'm going to take 50% of the business for that hundred grand. Sure. And if other, if other founders say, well, at that price, I'd like to put some money up, great. Yep. Put some money up and we'll, you know, we'll find some middle ground there. But, but any money that goes into the business should be treated as an investment, even if it's coming from the founders and structured the same way. Right. Most entrepreneurs that I seem to come across always want to retain like 90% of the business or 95% of the business and give people tiny little percentages. Do you come across, is that is that your experience? Um, I, I guess I come at this from I'm almost always the person who started the business to begin with. Right. Um, and that's not really my philosophy. I, you know, I guess I've seen that before. Um, and I would say that it tends to be fairly short-sighted. Yeah, it's a recipe you know, for it, failure. I, I, and I just think it makes people feel like, you know, if you're there in a room with five other people and you're saying, um, my collective contribution to the business is worth literally 20 times what your collective contribution to the business is. Yeah. If that's true, then it's fine. But yeah. it's rarely true. It builds animosity, um, yeah. I and, think it does. It's just demotivating. So what's the difference 
and I know the answer to this, but a lot of people don't. I was surprised yesterday when I, when I talked about it. Um, what's the difference between a lifestyle business and an equity business? Sure. Well, I, I think there's different types of companies. There are those companies that are built for cash flow. To me, fundamentally, lifestyle businesses are, are those in which um, you're looking for enough income to pay for your lifestyle, right? You pay for your house, pay for your car, pay for your kids to go to school, all those different things. Yep. And maybe enough that you can take out your vacations here and there, but you're, you're entirely focused on building cash flow. Yep. And, and those businesses to me, you, you don't want to invest a lot in technology or any defensibility of the business. Those, those are all things that drain on that cash flow. And you're not as interested in what is the equity outcome here. You're mostly interested in how do I simply make enough to, to make a living? Yep. Um, equity businesses to me are all about, I'm going to take the least amount of money out of the business possible. I'm going to take every cent I can and reinvest it into um, technology, defensible uh, barriers entry, all these different things to make the business uh, more valuable because you're designing it very specifically for an exit. You want to sell the business. Right. And I think that a lot of people get stuck not understanding which business they're in. You know, they'll, they'll treat the business like a lifestyle business with this assumption that, well, someone's going to pay a lot of money for this business because I've got up to $100,000 a month. And the fact is, very few people are going to pay anything for that. Right. right? Those, those businesses very rarely exit. Um, and basically, you have to make sure that business is designed in such a way that it'll continue to generate cash literally for decades, which I think is a much tougher thing than, than people realize given the, the pace of change. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's people understanding what kind of business they're in and making a commitment to that and structuring the business accordingly because sitting in the middle is a, is a recipe for, for not fully committing to one or the other. If you're going to build a business to be sold, it is all about how you keep every expense as low as possible on your, your personal side and for the, the side of the people that are putting money in, they're all looking to build the value of the underlying equity of the business. Um, and, and that is something I think that should shape every decision you make. Um, and if it's a lifestyle, then just focus on cash flow. But don't, don't, in, don't sit there and straddle the fence and try to figure out, oh, I'll, you know, I'll invest in this piece of technology. That's a waste of money. Just make sure you pull as much cash out of the business as rapidly as possible and build up a nest egg and hopefully you can retire on that nest egg and, and uh, that's the end of it. What, um, uh, I've got a new tech company. Um, things are going reasonably well. We're, we're just starting to generate revenue. We're growing. How, how far in the future should I look to an exit? I mean, is well, there, is there yeah. any sort of formula? I think it's funny, you know, investors spend a lot of time focused on exit, right? Because that's the way they're... Get their money back. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. They want to get their money back. And I think it's, they they spend a lot of time really pushing, uh, you know, the entrepreneurs to say, uh, and formulate a strategy around what that exit looks like. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, as long as it doesn't impact the strategy of the business. Right. Um, I, I think sometimes what happens is, um, especially after people take an investment and they've really been pushed on that question, um, the entrepreneurs get overly focused on how do we position this business for a sale. Yep. And I think doing that, you tend to start whipsawing in strategy, right? Because the, the broader equity markets and the M&A markets uh, oscillate over time. Sure. You know, one moment enterprise businesses are hot and then it's, you know, uh, you know, consumer businesses are hot and it's, you know, yep. it, those trends evolve very, very quickly and that pace continues to change. And I've seen this before. You see these companies where their position is this and then six months later their position is that and then all of a sudden they change their like that's going to get exhausting to the people in the business and feel like the captain doesn't know exactly where the hell they're guiding the ship. Sure. Um, and I think it's just simply exhausting from a, from the perspective of if you know what the business is going to be all about, every day should be, you know, you should wake up. You should, 
and focus on how do I execute on that goal. If you do that, buyers will come. The market will oscillate all over the place, but at the end of the day, if, you're, if you know exactly what the business strategy is, you understand the market, you're delivering value to, to a certain uh, group of, of buyers, people are buying what you're selling and they're doing that on increasing rates, you have a valuable business and you should forget about what the exit looks like. The exit will come. And it's, and because going out and saying, I want to sell something is a very different experience than someone coming in and saying, I want to buy what you have. Absolutely. I agree. So what's the, what's the hardest things about running a business? I think it's mostly it's managing people, um, making sure that this, uh, you keep the politics at a minimum and keep people rowing the right direction and, and managing that. Um, I think that's absolutely crucial. Being someone who can really act as a leader, I think that's enormously difficult. Um, but the other thing I think is managing cash. Um, uh, so often I see uh, people who have an amazing idea, they begin to execute on it, they have enormous amounts of passion for that thing, and they have no idea what's going on with money. They don't know how much money is coming in, going out, what it's going for. Um, one of the very first members anyone should have on their team is someone who lives and breathes numbers. Right. Someone who's going to sit there and understand the cash flow of your business, right? Assuming you get to that place, yep. assuming you get to that place, you've actually got cash flow. Someone who understands that cash flow and knows how to manage that process such that you don't run out of money. Um, it is, I cannot say this enough, how many people I see who start making money and they have no understanding of their cost basis and they go, wow, you know, we made, yep. you know, $80,000 this month, you know, and they start spending like they're making, you know, $300,000 a day and they don't understand that even at $8,000, they're losing a lot of money yeah, and, and yeah. understanding, you know, to me, money is the lifeblood of the business and not understanding how it works. It kills 80% of the people I know that they're in business. Okay. We're running a bit short of time, but um, at some point in most companies, you have to, you know, you get to a stage where something's not working. You need to either pivot or put your hands up and say, well, I gave it my best shot. <laughs> it's, not, it's just not working. That's a very, very hard thing to do when you've made the commitment. So how do you determine when it's time to quit? I, I still struggle with that. I think it is from a, you know, because it's all the same qualities that make an entrepreneur very successful are all the same things that make them terrible at admitting defeat. Yep. And, and, I, and I think this, uh, you know, I had this in a, in a business a while back. We had kind of a, what I consider kind of a catastrophic failure in the business in which we you know, were doing very, very well. We got the business up to, we're doing about, you know, three to $4 million every month. The business had some scale and we had this catastrophic failure that wiped down half of the revenue. Right. And, um, you know, we had to react to that by cutting staff and everything else. And there was a point in time when I think it became very clear to everyone that, um, you know, the, the business was probably not going to survive and the best thing to do would be to stop, you know, collect the receivables and have a graceful exit of the business. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, you know, it's damn you have, to do. I know it's your, baby, it's your right? life it's, in it, haven't you? You yeah. got your life in it and it's, you know, you're connected to this thing and you always feel like you can find a way out. So I would say it's one of those things where um, it is, I think, something that I have yet to meet an entrepreneur that knows how to make <laughs> a good decision yeah. about yeah. when to call it quits. But it's something that I think is really born out of experience that, that I've done it enough now and I've seen enough uh, you know, of those signals as the business starts to have some issues but the most important signal, I think, is gets back to those same two important things I was talking about before, and that is people and and uh, money. Yeah. Um, and I say this is money. If you really look at the business and you don't see a viable way um, to to 
bridge the gap and get the business back to a point of financial stability. It is better to pull the plug than go deep into personal debt. Where, where I would draw the line, there's a lot of people will then start borrowing heavily. They'll mortgage their house. They'll do different things to, to work their way through that. Yep. And everyone hears about the one success where the, you know, they took it all the way to the line and they managed to, you know, you know. The and I tree, think they can do it. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the tree, you know, the plane was coming down and we were scraping the treetops and then we managed to get off the feet again. 999 of those stories did not end that way, right? The plane hit the ground and exploded and everyone died. And, and, and I think that's one of the most important things is, understand that if, if the business is heading towards insolvency um, and it's heading there in such a way that you don't have a real good way to, to get out of that without barring heavily against all your own personal assets and the assets of, of close people around you, it's typically time to pull a plug because as painful as that may seem at that moment, other things come along. And at least you'll then have, you know, you, you'll be able to set, salvage some form of kind of cash that you can use to get the next business off the ground because it, it you know if you're an entrepreneur you're always going to do that but yep. if you hit the ground so hard that you burn up all your your equity not just in the business but outside of the business you are screwed you, you could pay you know i did this early on in my career i i pushed it way too far and it literally took me almost a decade to come back from that simply because i exhausted so many of my personal resources and the resources of the people around me it took a long time to get back to that place, and that's yeah, that's it, I think. Okay. Alex, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Now, if you'd like to know more about Alex and AMP Desk, that's A-M-P-D-E-S-K. Excuse my my accent. I've been living in Los Angeles 27 years, and I, my vowels all sound the same to a lot of people. So go to ampdesk.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, broadcasting today from Los Angeles. Well, Apple had its big reveal day yesterday. I always look forward to Apple's reveal days. The big one, of course, was Apple's long-rumoured music service. Tim Cook delivered and promised to change the way we experience music forever. Pretty big statement with a new streaming platform. They also announced pretty solid tweaks to their software products from new versions of OS X and um, iOS to updates of its um, car, home, watch, software, and all sorts of Siri integration. They may not like make the big headlines, but um, little changes like Maps Public Transit support can probably make a big difference in the long run. Um, reminiscent of Google, there was a lot of, you know, the more these two companies um, are going head-to-head, the more similar they get. So reminiscent of, of Google, now Siri the uh, iOS pro- proactive assistant uses the data on your phone to give contextual advice and options. Well, that's a big step forward. And if it works, <laughs> that means scanning emails and putting invitations directly into your calendar. So Siri actually gets your emails and decides to put your appointments in your calendar without asking you. That could be really dangerous. You can end up with a pretty full week. Um, or Siri automatically selects an energetic soundtrack when you go on a run in the morning. So you don't have to pick your song. Siri does it for you. Siri now suggests individuals you might want to phone, apps you might want to use, and breaking news that you might want to read. 
how we make fucking decisions for ourselves anymore. We got this Siri doing it for us. So, jeez. So you're at home and the wife says, do this, do that, do something else. You go outside, get in your car, drive to the office, and you got Siri saying, do this, do that. This is the music you're going to listen to. Jeez, I reckon there's going to be a whole freeway littered with iPhones. <laughs> uh, but Apple's playing up its privacy advantages, promising that all your data will stay on the phone instead of in the cloud. That's a big step forward, particularly with all the concerns now about privacy. One of the biggest strikes against Apple Maps, it's been its lack of public transit directions, but in iOS 9, Maps will support bus, ferry, subway and train routes. Actually, um, they're trying to one-up the other transit apps on the market by mapping subway stations to offer a more accurate estimate of travel times. I think that's pretty cool. Transit maps are being released for select cities initially, Baltimore, New York, San Francisco, Beijing, Shenzhen, among others. So they do Shenzhen, but they don't do Los Angeles. I suppose there's no public transport. It's a bit of a waste of time. But um, we are getting more and more. There are a few more tweaks as well. If you search for nearby stores, for example, Siri will now tell you which stores take Apple Pay. I think that's a good idea. Now, less than two months into its life, the Apple Watch now has a new operating system. Watch OS 2. It has more options for watch faces. There's a little bit more interactivity overall. You can reply to emails instead of just reading them. But what they are doing, they're giving developers a lot more control. So now developers can make apps that play back video and audio using the watch speakers. And there's uh, full support for health kit and home kit. Remember the days, it's not that long ago, and probably a lot of you that are listening won't remember, but I remember the days when to get a good sound in your house with speakers, you need speakers at five foot high and two foot wide. And now you've got fantastic speakers in your watch. <laughs> Jeez. HomeKit, which is Apple's smart home platform, it's now capable of adjusting window shades, motion sensors, sensors and security systems. At the moment, uh, HomeKit's tied to Apple TV, but soon enough you'll be able to use your iPhone or iPad as long as it's connected via iCloud. Integrating HomeKit with your iPhone makes HomeKit instantly accessible to a much, much, much wider audience base. The car operating system also got some big upgrades yesterday as well. The most important is that CarPlay will allow automakers to develop apps that control your car's features. But Apple saved its new music service for the end of the keynote and even dusted off the Jobs era saying for its debut. You can stream your favourite artists, watch music videos and exclusive clips in HD and listen to curated playlists. There's also a feature called Connect that lets unsigned artists upload their music. That is a great idea. And Apple even created a global radio station called Beats One. And you get all that for $9.99 a month. And there's also a $14.99 family plan that allows you to share Apple Music with five other people. So I think that's fantastic. Apple Music could shape up the um, streaming marketplace. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide on Voice America Business. We're here to help entrepreneurs to become more successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer you on air or email you directly. Thank you for joining us for today's show and we look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not standing on the edge... You're taking up too much fucking space. Get lost. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard. I'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.